There was a time when if a country discovered oil, its financial worries were over. That time has long since passed. Nowadays, and especially in developing countries, there's a feeling that oil can easily turn from being a blessing to a curse. I'm in Uganda, the location of one of the biggest onshore oil discoveries in sub-Saharan Africa. For a country which has been poorly developed for decades, I'll be asking who will benefit from the discovery and can the oil wealth improve the lives of ordinary Ugandans. I'll be meeting the Irish company involved and travelling to the Tolo oil fields in one of the most scenic parts of East Africa. We now realise that there's perhaps about two and a half billion barrels all told within the Ugandan acreage in western Uganda on the shores of Lake Alba. I'll also be getting the views of some of Uganda's business people. My hope and prayer is that uh, the oil in Uganda doesn't become a curse. If handled well, it should be a blessing. And I'll visit the work of an Irish NGO, giving aid in a very different way, helping companies compete for the business bonanza of oil development. I'll be talking to the local government leaders and I'll hear from those who say that corruption and poor governance is exactly why ordinary Ugandans won't be any better off from oil. Those that are supporting the president's ideologies quite strongly are the ones that are rewarded. And these are the very people that are actually promoting corruption. Also, I'll be hearing the views of the Irish government's representative in Kampala, Ambassador Kevin Kelly. But the first stop on my journey is to buy fuel. I'm here on the Jinja Road, which is one of the main roads out of Kampala. It's a Saturday morning, about 10 o'clock, and it's completely choked with traffic. Minibuses, cars, trucks. The most popular method of transportation in Uganda is by road. Everything moves by road. And we're about to fill up here. It's 160,000. Okay. Yeah, roughly there. Yeah, that's roughly about 45 euros uh, to fill the tank. And for a country that has um, an average monthly wage of below 30 euros, that's quite a lot of money. The reason for the high cost of fuel in Uganda is that every drop of oil has to be imported by road from the Kenyan port of Mombasa about 1,300 kilometres away. One of the first expectations of ordinary Ugandans is that oil production will mean cheaper fuel. But that's a long way off at this stage. I'm battling my way through the Kampala traffic to meet Patrick Pichichure, one of Uganda's leading entrepreneurs and chairman of the Ugandan Investment Authority. The biggest challenge we have right now is managing people's expectations. Um, We've been talking about oil for the last 30, 40 years. But now that we have proven reserves uh, in the quantum of two and a half billion barrels, everybody's very excited about this. Now the challenge, of course, is to how do we manage these resources for the benefit of the majority of the community at large. And the the government is working um, painstakingly hard with the private sector and seeking all kinds of advice so that we do not make the mistakes some of our neighbors have made in the past and so that this resource is managed for the long term and for the benefit of the majority. But it's a very exciting time for for Uganda. That excitement is evident at the headquarters of Tolo Oil Uganda, the local subsidiary of Tolo Oil, founded in Ireland 25 years ago by Roscommon man Aidan Heavey. CEO Brian Glover explained Tolo's plans for their Ugandan oil fields. It was 2006 when the first oil fields were discovered. I came along in 2008 and there was probably about 50 million barrels discovered at that time which is not a very large amount of oil. Um, But between then and now, we've gone to over a billion barrels of oil discovered, and we now realise that there's perhaps about two and a half billion barrels all told within the Ugandan acreage in western Uganda on the shores of Lake Albert. So Tello has has grown dramatically during that time. So within a space of, of really four years, we've grown from being a handful of people to a company now with over 200 members of staff, uh, largely Ugandans, uh, 85% Ugandan company, uh, but with over a 1,000 people in the field. We've got three rigs drilling nowadays. We've got several seismic crews working. It's become a major company here, and it's a major player 
And when we've drilled 42 wells, I think, at the moment, in fact, the number of wells we're drilling at the moment is, is, is so big it was a losing count, but 41 of them have found oil, uh, which is a remarkable success record. I think it's probably a world record in terms of how, how many oil uh, wells we've been able to discover. But there's some challenges with this because unlike uh, oil you might find in the North Sea, etc., which flows uh, at surface uh, temperatures, our oil, which is actually quite a good oil, it's 93% quality of, of Brent, um, if we look at an oil that I've just got in front here, here's a normal oil, Tim, and you can see that when you turn it upside down, it flows, and you can see there's no problem. It's but here's our kind of free-flowing liquid. Indeed, but, but here's our Ugandan oil, and I'm just turning it upside down here, and you can see there's absolutely no movement. It's a solid black substance, a bit like shoe polish. In fact, it smells like shoe polish as well. Um, but we've got a big challenge because we find this at relatively shallow depths, not, not too difficult to get to the surface, but because it becomes a solid at the surface... To be able to transport this, we actually need to keep it heated. That becomes a very costly activity. Uh, and also, whilst it's a very good quality oil, what we would like to do with the government here and with our new partners, Total and Sinoc, is be able to refine the, product, uh, refine the crude here uh, so that we can provide products into the marketplace. Uh, but there's so much oil here that we also believe that exporting the remainder of the crude makes a lot of sense. So we've got to build a big pipeline uh, and we're going to have to heat it. So... Engineering-wise, it's a quite a challenging project. And where are we today? Well, the oil is still in the ground. And we now need to think about building facilities, pipelines, refineries, building infrastructure, making sure roads are in place, everything like that. Uganda is 1,300 kilometres from the coast. It's uh, remote uh, in many respects. And therefore, this is not just a project about getting oil to the surface. It's about a project about creating the entire value chain for Uganda's oil. The question of how to develop an oil-related value chain locally is a big challenge for oil companies in developing countries. I'll be looking at how that might work in a country with so little economic development. I'll also be looking at the wider Irish interests and opportunities in Uganda and how Tullow's increasing involvement might impact on Ireland's relationship. The Irish ambassador in Kampala is Kevin Kelly. This oil Bonanza, which is what it will be, is, is, has a real potential to move Uganda from being you know, a, a poor developing country into a middle-income country. We're talking about 2.5 billion barrels of oil that could raise the revenue in this country of between 2 and $5 billion per year. Uh, now, it's not going to happen overnight. This is going to take time to develop. And I think Ireland is very well placed to provide support uh, to Uganda as it makes that transition. Because, as I'm sure uh, your listeners will be aware, people often describe oil, uh, finding oil or resources like that as a blessing, but it could also be a curse. People talk about the oil curse. And unfortunately, the continent of Africa has too many stories of countries that have uh, discovered significant riches under the ground and uh, which have led to serious problems. And so we're all intent to ensure that the oil resources that Uganda has become a real blessing rather than a curse. Oil is becoming a sensitive issue in Uganda these days and journalists are not allowed into the oil-producing areas without written permission. And that permission is rarely given. But with the help of the Irish Embassy and Tullo, I'm allowed to travel to the shores of Lake Albert to visit the oil fields, which will eventually produce up to $50 billion worth of oil. So we stay low level. And um, I would like to um, introduce you to the plane. It's, we have uh, six exits. We have uh, the two pilots in the cockpit, the two underwing exits and the two exits... I'm being flown the 400 kilometres north from Kampala on the newly acquired turboprop service, which Tolo now uses to bring oil workers into the field. We fly over one of Uganda's largest and oldest protected areas at the northern end of the Albertine Rift Valley. The Murchison Falls Conservation Area is where the River Nile passes through a narrow gorge before entering Lake Albert. By the way, this was also one of the locations for the 1951 John Houston film, The African Queen. Today, it is also the location of Uganda's oil. I met at Bugungu Airfield by Rosie Burungi. She's Tullo Oil's local liaison person, and she'll be my chaperone during my time in the oil fields. We're heading for one of the drilling rigs on the edge of the Murchison Falls Park. 
It's in the area called Bulisa District. Rosie explains how and where different groups live in the area. As you come from Bugungu Airstrip, you have the park, which is green, nice tall trees, a very distinct kind of vegetation. As you come out of the park, you'll find another section, a big kind of section with crop growing and you can't find animals or fishermen or anything. So it's predominantly for growing crops. And then as you go outside towards the town, you'll find another section of uh, grazers. And in that area, it's all grassland, no crop cultivation. And as you go further um, south, you'll find the, fish, the fishing community. So the fishing community is so close to the lake, then thereafter you find a grazers. It's a very rural landscape and an area that has seen very little development. Rosie tells me about the community's initial fears around oil and how Tolo is dealing with them. Initially, there were a lot of anxieties, expectations, fears, uh, but we've, Tala as a company has had uh, extensive community engagements and uh, trainings. We've sponsored trainings to the leaders to kind of know what the industry is, what follows what, and somehow we've managed to contain uh, people's expectations of fears. And what kind of fears do the local people have? Initially, uh, the civil society organisations came to Bulisa and started uh, showing films of the Nigerian Delta problems. Polluted wells, uh, open flaring, miserable communities and things like that. So when the oil companies came, the people's fear, biggest fear was oil is going to kill their lake. Oil is, is disastrous, based on the Niger Delta films, which the civil society organizations had kept showing the people. But um, through transparent engagements and keeping them, taking them even on field trips with us or to show them a project safe, if a rig is, is, is active, we take stakeholders to see actually what takes place and see for themselves what we are doing. And with the help also of other stakeholders like Ministry of Energy, uh, who have been transparent and showing what government is doing about avoiding the Niger Delta problem coming to Uganda. All of a sudden, I see a drilling rig through the vegetation. After the usual health and safety checks, I'm introduced to the rig supervisor, second-generation oilman, second-generation Irish-American, Paul Doyle. I was born and raised in a place called Ponca City, Oklahoma. Yeah, I've been in the oil business for 34 years, so I've worked pretty much all over the world. I've worked here in Africa as well, in Chad, but I haven't been in Uganda before. You know, there's a history here between Hardeman and, uh, of course, the other company, Heritage, and now Tullow. Uh, one thing about it, I think they all knew oil was here before they started because there's natural oil seeps here, have been for years, and everyone's always targeted this... Uh, Rift Valley, it's been famous for years for oil prospecting. They drilled wells in Kenya, they're drilling right now in Tanzania. So it's not a new idea because it's got the sediments, but the, uh, the trick is not just finding it, it's how do you produce it and how do you get it to market. And I think that's where the challenge is going to be. You know, oil, that's just the first step, finding it. The big key is, and especially a landlocked country like this country, Uganda, is actually developing it, especially in an environmental sensitive area like this and producing it. It's not an easy prospect, especially when the oil's not easy to manage, like this uh, 30 gravity, but high paraffin or wax content oil. It's, it's going to be extremely difficult. And the stage you're at now here, is it coming? This, this particular well's finished. We just finished running casing. Been up all night. We just got through cementing uh, production casing, and everything is ready to produce, except for the final completion work. It just needs to move a rig back in and do that once they get permission from the government. That's all. So this will become a production well? Potentially, yes. Potentially, yes. It's the time frames all totally dependent on, you know, how, how they manage uh, things with the government. Oil talk tends to be a bit technical. But what Paul tells me is that moving to oil production here will not be easy and will take time. Paul has drilled for oil in the Amazon and other environmentally sensitive parts of the world. I'm interested in how he views this location and he tells me more about developing the find. Two-stage process, at least in my experience, I've done a lot of development, big projects like this in other countries like Venezuela, Yemen, other places, and 
depends on one the type of reservoir you got and what kind of production this is a shallow heavier more uh, difficult uh, situation to access in other words these wells aren't just going to simply flow and that be the end of it and produce it I think there's going to be a lot more thought put into the reservoir and how to develop it because obviously not only do you have uh, downhole issues but you got surface issues you can't just go out and build pads exactly where you want and since they are shallow TVD you know, you're only talking about 500 to 800 meters it's not quite so easy to drill the wells and place them out in a horizontal pattern because you don't have much room to work with in a vertical situation so there's going to be a lot of challenges here that are different than places I usually work with are deeper you know uh, but saying that the biggest challenge here isn't the drilling. I think it's more logistics and uh, environmental issues. Obviously, it's unique because of the you got a national park just a few kilometers away. We can only have one rig in there at a time, so that's going to hamper drilling operations to a large extent. And then how you actually manage the uh, the environmental issues. I think uh, you know so far what I've seen, they seem to be doing a good job. But again, I've only been here three, four weeks, so it's hard to say. Uh, I was actually surprised at the size of the footprint here. You know, it's pretty big, actually. Uh, but then, then again, I think they're in the learning process on how to manage these projects as well. So. Brian Glover, the CEO of Tolo Uganda, is well aware of the environmental challenges. It's, it's always a challenge. You've got to do something on the surface. And our policy is about trying to minimize the footprint so that you get very, very small areas. And therefore, the, the visual impact directly where, where we're actually finding the oil will be relatively small. The intention afterwards is to ensure that oil is transported via pipelines, which will be buried, and it will be taken away from these, these highly sensitive areas and, and be processed elsewhere. And that's something that we, we've, we've tried to... to um, work closely with the government to ensure that we have the shared vision of, of any form of industry being well outside of the area where, where we see such wonderful wildlife and scenery. Before I leave the drilling rig, I get Paul Doyle's views on this idea of local content, how locals can benefit from oil production. The key is that the locals have to be profiting from it and benefit from it. So far they haven't, I don't think, here. And that's something that will happen in time, I think. They have, but it's a very small group. I think what they're looking for is the immediate impact, which won't happen, and it's always the case in every country, which is cheaper gasoline prices and the, the input into the throughput into the economy, like uh, better schools, better uh, public services, better uh, roads, everything. And those are things that uh, come with time. As I leave the rig, I'm wondering about the potential environmental costs weighed against the benefits of a development like this in an area and a country that really does need to be developed. Tolo's Rosie Barungi shows me a very practical example of local development as a result of the oil. There are many roads which were either defunct or heavily encroached upon or even a few non-existing ones but with our activities we have to move equipment, move personnel and to sites, for example to the rig including this road we are on right now, Talo, with the permission and, and support from the local government of Bolisa, we have been able to refurbish many of these roads. And they are, we are able to move our equipment on them, but also the local population, the local communities, are able to easily be accessed by, by groups that come from far away to buy produce, say cassava flour, fruits. You can see there are too many oranges here. This place is also famous for fruit growing. So instead of um, having middlemen, the farmers are able to get direct contact with um, the buyers. We're heading for the local town of Bulisa, a one-street backwater that already has a Tolo oil office and looks set to expand rapidly in the coming years. It's the headquarters of Bulisa District, and I'm going to meet the chairman, the Honourable Fred Lukumu. It's a political position to which he's recently been re-elected. He aims to represent the interests of the locals in the face of this massive development. He first outlines his main concerns. Among the concerns are the possible adverse environmental uh, effects on the population. Uh, for example, uh, we at least know that uh, our waters, our land, or even air could be polluted as a result of extraction of oil 
And there is also a possibility that there will be an influx of population. Unless there is preparedness for that, it may create many serious adverse environmental impacts on our communities. Another uh, area of concern, we, we fear that the concentration on oil may render economic activities, including uh, livestock farming, fishing, may be endangered or neglected, which in the end could be a problem because we don't know how long oil extraction will last. So after oil extraction, what next? So these are also areas of our concern. You know, if there was to be any catastrophe arising out of oil extraction, the first victims are the people of Belisa, with the residents of Belisa. So really there is a need for TALO and government to ensure that there is affirmative action to the people of Lisa district. Uh, affirmative action in the sense of opening opportunities for the people of Lisa, one, in terms of employment, to acquire skills, so that we, we, we have some places reserved for our people to serve in this industry. The level, the level of We're interrupted by noise from building works being carried out next to the newly built government offices we're in. The chairman explains what's happening. So what we are saying, under TALO Corporate Social Responsibility, we see positive relationship, like what you, you hear there, that structure which is being roofed. Uh, TALO has contributed to that, develop, that project, that is the construction of a community resource centre. This is in answer to our request as a district. Uh, we requested TALO as our partners in development to consider assisting us in what would help our community and we consider that facility to be of great use. There is no doubting the political abilities of the chairman and the input from TALO and their intentions at a local level will no doubt help their cause. But in such a relatively unspoiled and environmentally sensitive area, great care is needed. And of course, it is the needs that developed countries like Ireland have for oil and gas, which makes a development like this so attractive to a country like Uganda. I'm heading back to Kampala to meet an Irish NGO taking a different approach to aid, helping Ugandan businesses step up enough to benefit from the oil development. And I'm also going to hear more about the threat posed by corruption and poor governance, neither of which can be underestimated when there is so much at stake. As I say goodbye to Rosie from Tullow Oil at the banks of the River Nile, she tells me what she thinks about the oil discovery. There have been a lot of uh, negative publications, say from civil society organisations, or based on the experiences in countries, for example in Africa, which have oil. Uh, Ugandan economy is still pretty young, but we need to look further because Ugandan population currently is growing so rapidly, uh, the whole country. So as a nation and uh, as an economy, we need to diversify uh, how, how we can get more revenue and income to sustain the growing needs of the growing population. And I think oil and gas discovering the countries is a blessing and uh, many i would say the greatest percentage of ugandans are very positive um, that is if the, the systems of government are checked like corruption levels and things like that it will be surely a blessing to the country an irish ngo called trade links is helping ugandan companies raise their standards so that they can compete for some of the 10 billion dollars to be spent developing oil in the coming years TradeLink's operations manager, Harry McIver, explains. TradeLink's was originally set up as part of the, uh, the private sector forum back in Ireland and as a result of the Millennium Goals back in 2000. There is a great trepidation about engaging the private sector into the aid world and TradeLink's was set up to try to develop the, the model of trade, not aid, now, it's going to take time for it to, to, to gather momentum. But, you know, in many ways, Ireland is one of the, the leaders in this area from the point of view of having the, uh, the initiative of developing trade links 
putting it out here in Uganda and testing it and see how it, it works. Harry is taking me to visit one of the companies TradeLinks is mentoring. It's a food processing company. East African basic foods. And uh, I'm going to take you in and meet Mr. Arani Casabanti and Finley Campbell, who Finley is an interim general manager that TradeLinks have placed in the company. And he's been there now nearly a year. Ronnie so Casabate, one of the directors, tells me what TradeLinks has done for them. TradeLinks came to us in 2008. Their first interest was in the processing and also in accounts. They did uh, give us a lot of uh, assistance. Our processing was rearranged. We reduced the time we are spending in the processing of the product and also uh, the quality, the management accounts, the costing and also the introduction of uh, a computer package, uh, an accounting package which we are using. So uh, they have really helped us. Finley Campbell is a VSO volunteer. He's been installed as company manager by TradeLinks. He shows me around the plant, which processes soya and maize. So what happens here, the first operation is the ladies that you can see around come in and they sort the soya on tables. They take out all the impurities. They do the same thing with maize, and it's a, it's a hand process, although we can get machines to do it. What happens is we bag into 50 kilo bags and then we move it into our clean store, and this is the clean store. So the two machines first take the skin off the maize and then we mill it into a fine flour in the second machine. Uh, the process you see here, we take flour and soya and we mix it in this mixing drum. gets fed through automatically into the hopper and through gravity it brings it through the extruder. The last process on the extruder cooks the product. So this is a cooked soya uh, maize blend. quite hard but it's cooked and it's very nourishing for you and then these these soya maize chunks get fed through into a mill and then it gets packed either by the uh, equipment there's a, a packing machine in there for high volume products or it's hand packed I see oil as a big opportunity for this company particularly. Uh, the, the contractors, the people that will be working in the oil industry, will all need to be fed. We make a, a staple product that everybody in Uganda eats in some shape or form. So we see it as a, a huge opportunity for us. To... We've been talking with some of um, Tullo's subcontractors at the moment, but we're not. They're only looking at this point in time. Before I leave, I ask Ronnie how he feels about the oil discovery. The standard of living will have to improve. And when the standard of living improves, people will have money to buy the uh, processed foods. My hope and prayer is that uh, the oil in Uganda doesn't become a curse as it has been in other African countries. If handled well, definitely it should be a blessing this country. After my visit, Harry MacIver tells me more about TradeLink's success with the company. It took us probably the guts of a year, a year and a half to get them into order and into shape. In 2010, they made a small profit of about 5, 5.5% net profit. Now, this is just to give you an idea. This company has got an approximate turnover of a million dollars. This is considered quite a significant business here in Uganda by the Ugandan scales. This company is employing roughly 70 people. So if you take 70 livelihoods and the average family in Uganda is probably about six or seven people, about 420, 450 people are benefiting from that in this organization. So it doesn't sound like a lot, but believe me, this company is now at the point where it will be sustainable and then we can disengage with East African basic foods and hopefully see them to continue to grow and flourish and, you know, reap the benefits of uh, all the help that we've given them. Tolo Oil and its partners, French company Total and the Chinese company Sinuk, promise to have a strong amount of local content, whereby Ugandan businesses can benefit from the oil investment. Brian Glover 
CEO of Tolo Uganda, explains. Uh, we, we don't have anything here in Uganda in terms of uh, major industry. So everything that we need to actually develop the oil will have to be brought in. And let me try and paint that picture a little bit more clearly for you. In average, we bring about 20,000 tonnes of materials in at the moment during this exploration uh, phase, and that might be pipes, it might be uh, steel, etc., for construction. But when we go into the major development phase, which will happen in the next uh, few years, we need to import 200,000 tonnes a year. We will need to bring people in as well, because today, whilst we're looking towards improving the skills base, over the next few years we'll probably have to bring in expatriates to help train uh, the workforce here and ultimately generate a truly Ugandan industry. But it's a very big challenge to create industry here and and local companies that will be part of the long-lasting oil development in Uganda. The way we write our contracts is about ensuring that any international participation has a strong local content within that to help that local company come up to standard. So even Tolo admits that Uganda has a combination of a skills gap and a real lack of businesses that are ready at this stage to benefit from oil production. And it will take a long time for companies further down the value chain, such as those being helped by trade links, to see a real benefit from oil. There is also a temptation for people with power in Uganda to use their influence to get a share of what's on offer. This has been the experience of other developing countries. One of Uganda's leading business figures, Patrick Bitichore, gives me his view. It is, it is very hard for uh, an individual in the civil service to be, let, let, let's say, uh, the commissioner in, in a ministry to negotiate with the managing director of a powerful company like Talo. Uh, it's up to, uh, if, if, if somebody's got so much power and wealth behind him and is negotiating with somebody whose salary is, is probably uh, a paltry $1,000 a month, it's very hard to negotiate fairly on equal terms, however good, well-intentioned it is. So these are some of the challenges we have, which are, are obvious, they are there, and people take it for granted. But it's not easy when you've got Shell, BP, Total, Sinoc, and you're negotiating with such, some of these companies. And to them, dropping a couple of million dollars your way, which, which is governance is, is two ways, is very tempting, and it can skew everything. So the government has chosen very patriotic, very committed civil servants to work in these very sensitive positions. And uh, uh, the president himself is, is keeping a very close eye on every major step and goes through it very carefully to make sure that we are on the right path. However, there is another view that suggests the very role of the president in the oil negotiations, however well-intentioned, is a cause for concern. And that ultimately, the promotion of good governance in Uganda is the best way of ensuring that the benefit from oil trickles down to every level of society. Harriet Namisi from the Development Network of Indigenous Voluntary Associations explains how deep-rooted and far-reaching corruption is in Uganda. Uh, The kind of governance that we have, and especially in the area of politics, um, is really stick and carrot kind of politics. There's a lot of patronage, and those that are supporting um, the president's ideologies quite strongly are the ones that are rewarded. And these are the very people that are actually promoting corruption. Um, the fact that there is a high level of secrecy um, towards the oil industry so far is very suspicious. It does not necessarily guarantee that the ordinary citizens will actually benefit. The information that we get through the oil company is limited because they have signed agreements to, to a certain extent not divulge certain information and each of them, government and the oil companies, have got different responsibilities and roles in this. So um, the information currently is really within the presidency because in the last uh, few months the negotiation for the oil agreements was shifted to the presidency from the Ministry of Oil. So we have no information whatsoever what is happening around that, and, and that is the greatest fear. So we do not know how this is going to be executed in terms of how much money is allocated to which sector. The Irish government, through the embassy in Kampala, has been doing its share to help develop good governance in Uganda. Irish Ambassador Kevin Kelly is keen to point out just how far Uganda has to go and how Ireland, through Irish aid, can help with that process. This is a very young 
democracy. Uh, it's only 2005 since multi-party democracy. That's only six years ago. So a lot of the institutions of state have been building up, and we've been really following that journey with Uganda. And so we've invested over 30% of our investment is spent on governance, trying to strengthen the institutions of state. So that's everything from the Auditor General to make sure that the Auditor General is good and credible and independent and provides reports that are delivered every year to Parliament. We support the Parliament to make sure that also the independent committees of Parliament hold the executive to account. We're very much, uh, in terms of our Irish aid investment, trying to strengthen those, government, uh, those governance programmes. So the, we have been funding a financial management public expenditure accountability system that we hope that because of this investment that's been going on over the past few years, once these oil revenues kick on stream, we'll be able to see not just uh, Uganda's development partners, but Uganda's citizens. That's what's really important to be that the government is held accountable. And they'll be able to see where the oil revenues are going and that those oil revenues are benefiting the people of Uganda. Holding the institutions of government accountable is a daunting task in a country like Uganda. In Ireland, we're used to strong civil society organisations who serve as a counterweight to government power. In Uganda, those groups are weak and struggle against a powerful executive. Harriet Namisi outlines the challenge. Since the civil society is weak, the institutions are equally weak. So this would be the only arm of, 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 of the society that would help to hold leaders accountable for all the actions and the decisions that they make. But the executive seems to be more, most powerful uh, as compared to any other institution in the country. The civil society is, is quite afraid because we have also laws that eventually affect um, any uh, group that tries to raise voices against certain government policy or action, despite the fact that the Supreme Constitution um, does provide that uh, all the power belongs to the citizens. It's in action, it does not. So the odds seem, at a political level, to be stacked against ordinary Ugandans. And how exactly can donor countries like Ireland influence the distribution of wealth by a government with such a poor regard for civil society? The key to this, according to Ambassador Kevin Kelly, is transparency. In many other countries where there have been significant oil riches found, very often money has ended up in the hands of elites. And so we're very anxious to ensure that in Uganda that that doesn't happen and that the proper laws are in place. At the moment, we're engaging very much with other donors, with other donor countries, working with the government of Uganda to make sure that this new petroleum law that they put in place has all the correct provisions in place. Now, that law has yet to pass through Parliament, but the business arrangements of Tolo have been changing. And I wonder how their new partners see the idea of local content as a better means of passing on the benefits of oil to everybody. Brian Glover of Tolo Oil Uganda. We brought in Total and Sinop um, for a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, whilst Tolo has been hugely successful in its 25 years, uh, there's no doubting that a project of $10 billion would be challenging for a company like Tolo. Uh, challenging from a financial perspective, but also from a technical perspective as well. It's not just about getting oil out of the ground, it's about then building pipelines and refineries. And bringing on Total and CNOC creates expertise that we just don't have. In terms of what we do with respect to local content, if you look at Total's track record around the world, um, they're, they're exemplary in the way that they, they focus on local content. And, and CNOC likewise. I think for all partners what we recognise is that local content is not something you have to do because it's written in legislation. It's something you want to do. Why do you want to do it? Well, first of all, because it reduces your costs. Expatriates are expensive. And there's no doubting that. And most importantly, it creates sustainability. If you've got a local company here that wants to be part of that business, then they're going to be here for the long term. And that means that you've got sustainability throughout what I hope is going to be a very long-term activity for Uganda. Seeing things in the long term and learning from other companies and countries is something Ugandan businessman Patrick Pitature agrees is the best way forward for Uganda when it comes to oil. 
Now, we're really glad we have a company like Talo, and um, the top management of Talo have been excellent. Their vision for where they want uh, this oil industry to be has probably exceeded our expectations. We thought um, we knew what we were doing, but they actually raised the bar for us in terms of local content. Now, we have looked at neighboring countries, and, and we have spent, sent teams from Uganda to look at countries where they have gone wrong and are trying to correct it, like Nigeria, where they've got it right, like, like, like Ghana. We've sent out teams to see what's happening, but more importantly, we've got expert guidance from countries like Norway and the United States at a high level, and lately, the Irish government. They are looking in and seeing how they can help us, not just in, in, in uh, straightforward the oil and gas industry, but in very many other sectors where the government has, uh, the Irish government has always been supportive, from our policing, our public order management, some of the efforts that they have been making in the background. And all these things begin to fall in place to give the big picture of where Uganda should be going. Uganda is really a very young country, and we're going through a very steep learning curve. But we are very positive, and we accept to learn. We are willing to learn. We're taking on all the challenges. Now, the local uh, content is an area that is very deep. Everybody's talking about it broadly, but not with the depth of analysis that's required. How do you bring a cross-section of the country on board and manage people's expectations? People will not touch this oil. They'll not to see the revenue directly from the oil, but they want some of the spoils. So the only way is to encourage them to build the capacity to help them to build the skills required so that they can partake in this great initiative as it unfolds. It's a 30-year exercise that's going to be happening here. There are so many opportunities, and that's probably where most of the jobs and opportunities will be. And Talos identifying them, helping people see them, because genuinely, the Ugandans right now have never been an oil-producing country, so they don't see the opportunities. They, they're asking how, where, and that's where uh, Talos is helping them. Hold. And companies like TradeLinks are holding their hands and taking them through entrepreneurship centers, creating these skills that are required, the basic skills, showing them how to put the business plans together that can access the capital and can help them sign up contracts with companies like Talo, long-term contracts that will help them access finance and make a living out of it. For all the talk of local content, as yet there seems to be very little on the ground. But this idea of building the business infrastructure is a hot topic here and one that Irish Aid is supporting. I'm back with Harry McIver from TradeLinks, the Irish NGO supporting Ugandan businesses. He's worked right across the developing world and gives me very concrete examples of the challenges Ugandan businesses face. Uh, to take a container from here to Mombasa can be anywhere up to five or $6,000. Now, when I was in, in India working in the clothing industry, I could actually send a 40-foot container from Chennai to New York for something like two, two and a half thousand dollars. And I can't take it from Kampala to Mombasa, which is by road, and it's costing five or six thousand. It just seems ludicrous that, you know, the costs are grossly inflated here. Well, hopefully the benefit of oil will be that the government will have the funding to start developing the infrastructure in the country. I mean, we, we need to start to see motorways and highways being developed, um, especially the highway from Kampala to Mombasa, and then internally within the country to, to try and link up the, the more industrious areas and help develop industry into the, the far-lying reaches of Uganda. We're going to visit a plastics company that TradeLinks has been helping to develop. They now want the owner, Mr Badru, to consider expanding a plastics recycling unit he has and to consider linking up with Irish businesses to do so. As you can see over here in your, your right, Tim, it's the waste that has been collected from around the streets of Kampala or coming from other uh, factory units. And you can see that it's quite a pile. Now, the whole purpose of why TradeLinks is arranging for Badru to go and visit companies in Ireland is he needs to scale up to handle this type of volume and he feels that he wants to go grow to maybe five tons a day. I personally feel that he will be looking at 10 tons a day in a not too distant future because as things start to grow legs and people start to see the benefit in what's happening and see the potential income. I mean, you look at the uh, recycling businesses in Ireland. At the beginning, they were slow to take off, but once the penny dropped, there was quite a few of them sprung up and they've been very successful in many ways. So... If anyone was there turning and asked me, is there an opportunity in Uganda for recycling? Definitely. And, you know, Badru is hoping to take advantage of that scenario in the very near future when he, when he travels to plant Ireland in July. 
So there's an amount of, of trade development being encouraged yep. we're trying, trade with Ireland as well? We're trying to build links between the Ugandan companies and the Irish companies. Um, Luca Plastics is one of the first companies that we'll be doing that with. We've got another number of companies that we're going to engage with Irish organisations also. And it's, I know that this is plastics business here, but there's a number of companies where we can actually be, either become suppliers to Ireland in the form of retail or wholesale or whatever, or vice versa, that Irish companies can start to supply product into Uganda, depending on what the, you know, the need is and what the particular product is. So I think one of the big elements that is still unexplored yet within the TradeLinks uh, mission is how well we can develop the business-to-business linkages. And I think now that we have a bit of expertise and a bit of knowledge of Uganda and how it works and how things function, we can put that to great practice in the coming months and trying to develop strategic relationships between Ugandan organisations and Irish companies. Building links between Irish and Ugandan companies is also on the mind of Irish Ambassador Kevin Kelly, especially with a $10 billion oil investment on the way. Before, I suppose, when times were very good, uh, people, Irish businesses didn't look as far afield as Uganda for contracts to get, uh, you know, for business opportunities, for investment. We're finding that there's many more people now approaching the embassy, looking for advice and support, how to break into the Ugandan economy. People are seeing that this is a growing middle class, uh, real opportunities, a relatively safe country, English-speaking, uh, you know, a lot of investment going into education. Uh, so there's a real possibilities of investing in this market. And so we're seeing a lot of Irish companies wanting to get involved in engineering, consulting, construction. And so we would like to see over time that rather than Embassy Kampala being known as an aid mission, that we're known as a trade mission and that we're building up positive trading relationship between Ireland and Uganda. New Irish business links with Uganda may be on the way, but long-time Kampala resident and businessman Dublin-born Nigel Sutton tells me that while there are opportunities, the volatility of Africa is always a consideration. I've been living out in Uganda for 16 years. I run two businesses, an advertising agency, CBWA Limelight, and I've also got an Irish bar, Bubbles O'Leary's. There's a lot of the, the country could learn you know, from people's experiences from overseas on, on running businesses and, you know, attention to detail and attention to deadlines, etc., things like that. It is one area that is quite frustrating. I mean, it's approved a lot, obviously, since 95. But, you know, as businesses have grown here and competitions become more, you know, people sort of stepped up to the plate a bit and improved, obviously, with the whole oil and the way the country's going. Every area of living here, every part of living here will, be, will change for the better. There is a lot of opportunity and things that sort of on the edge of progressing probably quite rapidly and that everything seems fine and if everything stays fine, the opportunity is there. You know, in Africa, things can change quite quickly. You know, Uganda's been through some pretty hard times and for the last 20 years or so, it's, things have been good. I just think it would be a pity... If things, if things didn't keep going the way they're going. This mixture of optimism and potential, tempered with caution about the way the country is struggling to emerge from its dark past, are subjects which come up frequently while I've been in Uganda. It's a young democracy, institutions just getting off the ground. But we only have to look and see the journey that this country has taken. It's only since 1986 that the current government came to power after generations of conflict under Obote and then Idi Amin. And when I'm in a taxi in Dublin going to the airport and I say I'm going to Uganda, people in Ireland still have this image of Uganda is Idi Amin. Well, you know, the truth is that in 1986, this country, I've often heard it described from some of uh, Irish people who lived here at the time, they described this as a graveyard. There was virtually no functioning institutions. The judiciary was in tatters. To see the journey that Uganda has gone in that relatively short period of time should, I suppose, in terms of evidence, give you some hope for the future. The fact that in 1997 there were about 2 million kids in school and today there is over 8 million kids in school. 
the fact that the HIV-AIDS prevalence was up, upwards of 18% higher in some urban areas and is down to 6%. The fact that in many parts of this country were no-go areas in terms of security. And as you know, Uganda is located in a very troubled regional neighbourhood. You have Sudan in the north and you have Congo, and you had Rwanda. You know, so, but, and now you look at Uganda and it's a relative... Uh, beacon of calm in a very kind of otherwise relatively turbulent neighbourhood. So in terms of that journey, it would give you hope for the future. What's at stake in Uganda is very big in financial terms. And after all, that's why a company like Tolo Oil is here. Brian Glover explains. You could say that oil for Uganda is a $50 billion deal. Uh, maybe represents some $2 billion of revenue a year. That would be doubling its current revenue stream. That sounds significant, but we've got to remember that Uganda's got maybe 33 million people in there. So that $2 billion will not necessarily go a huge way, and it's really about how that money is going to be put back into the economy, be used for infrastructure development that the government are really focusing on now. They have a a very good understanding of how they best want to use that money and uh, we would like to think that that will create more success. So it's, it's about money-making money that will be the success for Uganda. How far the oil wealth will trickle down through Ugandan society is ultimately not a question that the oil companies alone can answer. During my time here, I've seen a lot of good intentions, talk of good governance and local content, an eagerness to avoid the mistakes of the past and help from countries like Ireland to develop good business in this part of Africa. The future for Uganda might actually lie beyond the oil and a little bit like Ireland might be tied more to the resilience of its people. I leave the final word on what oil could mean to Uganda to one of the country's leading entrepreneurs and a man who has a genuine passion for what could happen, Patrick Bittichuri. We've got... um human capacity, a great population that is growing very fast, that's got to be educated. Our people should be our biggest asset. If we invest wisely in these people and with the hinterland around us of more than 130 million people within the East African community, we could play a major role because of our location. We have such fertile soils, uh, such fantastic weather, and uh, are good people, genuinely good people. So if we can build on some of these skills, we could find ourselves in a very interesting position. <laughs>